This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's funny because if you had told me when I was young that, you know, oh, the Zuckerberg name, you know, might be synonymous with like the Rockefellers one day or a name like that, I would have laughed at you. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Randy Zuckerberg, welcome to No Limits. Hi, I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I feel like you're the first guest where really being in a studio like this is natural. You have your dot complicated radio show on Sirius XM. Yes, but usually I'm on the other side of the mic, so this is very unusual for me to be well, answering I'm the questions. That you're here. <laughs> you're a very busy woman. You also have the dot complicated website. You're a mentor on Quit Your Day Job on Oxygen, best-selling author, and of course you're the founder and CEO of Zuckerberg Media. And I read you just launched this new pop-up tech-infused dining experience. Yes. Oh my gosh, I feel like I've been walking around with a secret for months <laughs> that I haven't been able to tell anyone. It's basically like Willy Wonka Chocolate Factory for the tech generation. All right. So. Uh, we're launching it in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's going to be basically just hopefully mind-blowing for kids there to walk in and engage with 3D printers and all kinds of sensory experiences with technology. That's so cool. Do the 3D printers print candy? Oh, yes. The 3D printers <laughs> print either chocolate or hummus. Hummus! Uh, yep. And, and That's uh, a weird thought of a printer printing hummus. Yeah, I didn't I know. realize they could do that. It tastes delicious. And you can go in and you can get like a little robot printed out of hummus that comes with carrot sticks or you can get chocolate like little chocolate dolphins printed with fruit and and then we have like really cool ice cream experiences we have a bunch of experiences where you can learn how to code with candy without even knowing that you're learning how to code so all kinds of fun things to introduce kids to technology you strike me as the kind of person who has a million ideas running through your head if you had the time <laughs> to execute on all of them like choosing which one to actually focus on yes is that, probably one of the harder parts absolutely and and I have to say, just thank goodness for my amazing business partner, Jim Augustine, because I will call him in the middle of the night and say, I've got it, I have this thing. And then he just kind of figures out how to make it happen, which is amazing. That, and, and it's really important. We're going to get into just finding the right people to surround yourself with and work yes. and how important that is, especially as an entrepreneur. You are one of four siblings. Yes. Two younger <laughs> sisters. Is it Ariel? Is that how Yes. And Donna. And Donna. And then there's Mark. Yeah, you know, that, that, guy, that guy, whatever. That guy. <laughs> um, take us inside growing up in the Zuckerberg family. What was that like for you? It's funny because, um, I, I mean... I, our child, we had a very normal suburban, you know, Americana childhood. Like we, uh, did we, you put on plays? Yeah. Oh, of course, a hundred percent. We put on plays. Was Mark in the we plays? Made, yes. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> I feel like everything. you were the director. Like, and, I was uh, always the director, and, and you, you told everyone what their parts were. A hundred percent. Like when we put on like our own version of Star Wars, I was George Lucas. <laughs> like that's who I played. Like I was like, I. Why would I stoop to being a character in this play when I could run the play? Um, so yes, so that's 
that's what we did. And but we went, we we had like little ski holidays. We did different things. So uh, it's funny because if you had told me when I was young that you know oh, the Zuckerberg name you know might be synonymous with like the Rockefellers one day or a name like that. I would have laughed at you. I couldn't wait to marry out of the Zuckerberg name. I was like, you know, like when I was young, I was like, I was like, okay, uh, I can marry out of a name that doesn't start with Z. Because you're the last kid called for Always, yeah, the last kid, like at the back of the class when they do alphabetical order, everything. (laughs) And I was like. The the number one thing on your dating choices was like, does the name start with an A? That would be great. I'm only dating people whose names are like A through E because I'm just (laughs) sick of this end of the alphabet. And uh, so it's, it's really incredible. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I definitely pinch myself every day to now have, you know, this name that's synonymous with entrepreneurship in this country. Well, I look at you and I would imagine your parents had to instill the belief that anything was possible. And, and, you know, as a parent yourself, and there's so many people out there who are, who ask themselves, how do you make young people, young Mm -hmm. women in particular, believe that they can truly accomplish anything and go out and take the steps that are necessary? It's, uh, I mean, my parents are both doctors, and I think it would have been very easy for them to push all of us into medicine mm. um, because that's what they knew. My dad had a thriving dental practice that he was, you know, could have just handed over to any of us. And um, instead, they really let us pursue our own passions. I remember, I mean, even I think at two years old, I knew I loved singing and performing and being in shows. And uh, I used to come home and my mom would say, you know what, if you can at eight years old, go audition for something and get rejected and pick yourself off the floor and go audition for something else, you can handle anything that business and life throws at you. That is such a good point. So, that's so you why, were auditioning yeah. as, a, as a kid first I mean, off. for like school shows. Okay, like, let's school be shows. real, not, you, you know, like, like Broadway. You for but the, the no. cheese and macaroni commercials or no, things like that. But I mean, even, you know, even at eight, nine, ten years old, there's still only a few handfuls right. of lead parts. It's and a zero-sum game in, when it comes to theater. That's there's right. one role that's and then right. there's the understudy maybe. That's exactly right. And so you learn really quickly how to handle rejection. And that's why I love – I think it's so important for children to be doing sports or mm-hmm. to be doing uh, drama and things like that. Have a project yes. outside of the school, yeah. Exactly. So that for me I think really set me up for a lot of the entrepreneurial success I had later on because when I became an entrepreneur and started hearing no a lot, mm. I was like, oh, it's only no. There's always another audition. There's always another pitch. There's always another thing. And uh, you learn really quickly in theater to believe in yourself, even if other people don't believe you're the best person for the part. That's great advice. I read that you were on that path. You were going to – you wanted to be an opera singer, totally. work on Broadway – Yep. I went to school in New York City. My parents actually um, switched me. We grew up outside of New York City. They switched me to a private school inside of New York City so that I could study opera more. I did an independent study with Lincoln Center. Um, and that's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an opera singer. And then I got into Harvard, which is, I guess, the be-all and end-all for every like doctor Jewish family. That's pretty you know, awesome. It's awesome. And promptly got rejected from the music major there. And so that was wow. my first entrepreneurial pivot at age 17 <laughs> was to figure out, okay, what, what, what went through your head at that time? Because that, I mean, being told that you can't do the thing that you've desperately wanted to do, that you've planned for, it's not that simple no, to just say, okay, I'm simple. pivoting, I'm going to go do this no, other thing. No, I mean, it's pretty devastating, especially when your entire self-image and self-worth is wrapped up in this you know, one thing that you're going to be. 
And uh, so I, I feel like I had a, a little bit of a journey of self-exploration, but luckily uh, every cloud has a silver lining, right? Sometimes things that seem like failures in the moment are the biggest gift that you've been given. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that moment I felt crushed, and but I never would have developed a love for marketing or technology, which led me into my career in Silicon Valley, had it not been for that rejection. Right. And so you went, you you studied, what did you end up studying at I Harvard? studied psychology. Um, Harvard is a wonderful school for thought. They don't really give you the opportunity to major in things that actually have like actual right. career. Right. <laughs> um, so you, so psychology was pretty much the closest to marketing that Got I could it. get. <laughs> so you wanted, you basically made this decision that you wanted to go into marketing. You started your career in advertising, advertising, yes. and you, you, I, you, you ended up getting put in the digital marketing group. Yes, I know. So I got of like the flashy celebrity. Group. I wanted the flashy celebrity group. I felt like. All my friends inside the agency were constantly on television sets and shooting. I got all these friends who were working on Queer Eye for the Straight Guy at the time because American Express was sponsoring it. And they were always on television shoots. And I was so jealous. And here I was on the interactive and digital team. And uh, about, again, another blessing in disguise moment because two years later, all my friends were still getting lattes on television sets. And in interactive and digital, we were one of the fastest growing teams inside the company with, you know, an incredibly in-demand skill set. And you get the call. And I get the call. Uh, I mean, it was, I think, more like an AOL instant message at the time (laughs) just to date myself because, uh, you know, it's like 2004. Three, four, and uh, my brother's saying, "Hey, I uh, started this thing called the Facebook, and I could really use someone who knows digital marketing." Let me translate that for you, Rebecca. What he really meant was, "I need someone who will work for free." <laughs> That's really <laughs> what he meant by that. And uh, and he's like, "And you're my sister, and you know digital marketing, and I need someone who will work for free." So, um, and uh, I was at this. How did in- you think of it? It was interesting. I did not. I wish I could sit here and tell you that I had the foresight to say, you know, this is going to be this multi hundred billion dollar company. Of course. No, I think, uh, first of all, I was 24 years old in New York City having the time of my life. And I was like, I would never move out to the suburbs of California and work for my little brother. Like, I would (laughs) never do that. Um, But luckily, he convinced me to go out for a weekend and see what was going on at the Facebook. And uh It was incredible. It blew my mind. And Mm. it wasn't the product that blew my mind at that time. It was the guy's passion for Mm. what they were building. And also the fact that they were making decisions that it would take me 10 years at Ogilvy to get in a room where I would even be able to be included in a conversation like that. And these guys at, you know, age 19 were just sitting around making big decisions about their business. And I was like, I I want to be that. I want to be in the room where it happens. You know, I want I want I want to have that um, that decision making power and that experience. And uh, so I decided, all right, we I kind of never looked back at New York. I actually I told my brother I would go back in a few months, a few months. And (laughs) I think 10 years later, I just moved back to New York City. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Around the same time in my life, I was in finance Mm. and I was I was in Chicago at the time, but I spent a lot of time in New York as well. And I remember when I very first went out to Silicon Valley, it was to meet with another tech company. 
um, and I was thinking about maybe going to work with them. I just thought Silicon Valley and California, they're so far out ahead of what all the thinking is totally. right now. And I, and I almost feel like we don't have the same appreciation anymore for truly how much forward thinking was going on at that moment in time versus the rest of the world. Yes. And it's it's interesting because um, I so I spent 10 years working at Facebook, working in Silicon Valley, and I felt like I always had this very complicated push and pull relationship with Silicon Valley because on one hand, everything you're saying is entirely true. It's incredible to be surrounded by this world where people are dreaming bigger than anything you've ever seen, where nothing feels impossible. Like someone, you know, wants to dream up a flying car. Yeah, they're just going to go build it. Someone, you know, <laughs> wants to, you know, do like mind projecting. Great. They're going to go build it. Like there's no such thing as no or impossible. On the other hand, I also spent 10 years pretty much being the only woman in the room. Right. And so it was very confusing thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm in the most innovative place in the world. But wait a minute. Is it only white men that get to decide what's innovative? And that that felt very confusing to me to be in this world because half of me was just over the moon with everything I was seeing. And the other half of me felt like I was, you know, this invisible observer. Really? You felt that way. I, I mean, I think that uh, it's it's very challenging to be to be a woman in Silicon Valley, as you know, we're seeing a lot in recent news that's coming out. Um, I mean, these are things that are coming to light now, but it's indicative of behaviors that have gone on for decades in Silicon Valley. I uh, people always ask me what my kind of what's your secret to surviving in a male dominated world, and I, I wish I had better advice to give. But my advice is like have a boy's name. Because like <laughs> people I, thought, Randy. I, yeah, no, I swear that half the meetings I got in Silicon Valley were because people thought Randy was a guy, and then I would show up at a meeting, and people would look visibly shocked when a young woman would enter the room. Wow, <laughs> that's that's a crazy thought. I never ever contemplated that, and I also never contemplated that you of all people would feel that way. I mean, so given that you felt that way, what do you think is the root of the issue? I and so that's really what I've dedicated this next chapter of my career to and it's interesting because I mean I I love love loved working at Facebook. I mean I I got to work on so many incredible projects while I was there. I actually got to invent Facebook Live almost out of this ABC News studio. We got nominated for an Emmy for it. I Just love Facebook crazy. Live. Crazy. I mean great to be with Vadim. Yes, with Vadim so to be in have been involved in groundbreaking things like that that are now used by billions of people is incredible. And so it's like, okay, you know, you're at the top of your game. You're at this amazing company. Why would you leave? Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I felt like I just it was such a glaring problem with the lack of women and the lack of diversity that I felt like I needed to be part of the solution, not just continue to be part of the problem. You know, if here I was telling all these women, go start your own company, do your thing. But I wasn't doing that. And uh, so it I founded my own company, Zuckerberg Media, after about seven years of working at Facebook. And our goal is to put tech-savvy, smart women and girls at the center of pop culture. Because uh, you were asking, how do we fix this problem? I think we fix it in a few ways. I think we have to fix it in schools. I think we have to educate parents so that they feel more comfortable talking about tech. But I think far and beyond, it's how what young people see in pop culture and the mm -hmm. media that's going to affect uh, their own views of themselves, what they're capable of, what they can strive for. And so that's what we're trying to do right now is put smart entrepreneurial girls in, back into pop culture. 
which I want to come back to all the things that you're doing there. But I want to go to the decision that you made to leave Facebook because I think in our lifetime, in everyone's lifetime who's listening, there will be choices like that. First of all, who did you talk to about the choice? And and what was there a framework that you used in terms of I'm ready to make this move? What do I have in place? What do I need to have in place in order to make this happen? It's funny because um, I was about, I would say, eight months pregnant when I um, when I was making all these decisions. And every book that you read is tells you not to make big life decisions when you're very pregnant because you're not in rational mind, you know. And uh, of course, at about eight months pregnant, I quit my job, bought a house, started my own company, like everything. That just it's like you a know? bandaid, just That's rip right. it off, you're make like, it happen, just change it all at once. Um, But for me, uh, being part of the creation of Facebook Live and launching that was such a monumental thing in my own career. And seeing how quickly that took off, I realized, oh, my gosh, we are in a world that's about to completely change with Mm -hmm. how people view content, engage in content. It's going to be almost like the next gold rush of content. And um, I thought if I'm only working inside of one company, then my hands are a little bit tied of how I can participate in this incredible new phenomenon that we're going to see with content. But um, for me, it was also having children of my own changed my own relationship with technology a little bit. I think when you're sitting in Silicon Valley, everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid because everyone works in tech and they're all thinking like, yeah, tech, who are we going to disrupt today? You know, that's like pretty much every conversation. And then I had children of my own and I realized, wait a minute, not everyone wants to be disrupted. Like maybe our relationship with tech isn't 100 percent positive and maybe I've contributed to that a little. Mm. And um, and I started thinking, you know, a lot like, for example, I led our election strategy for several years inside of Facebook. I worked with ABC. I did. Yes. I mean, we did incredible, incredible things. I remember waking up every morning and thinking, oh, my gosh, we're giving a voice to everyone, you know, like like getting up in the morning. And then I woke up this November and I thought, oh, my gosh, we gave a voice to everyone. And uh, it's complicated. You know, sometimes the same technology that you work on and you have such idealistic views of it, um, everything has two sides, you know. Absolutely. So on the whole, what do you think? Good or bad? I, I mean, I love technology. I think it's overwhelmingly positive force in our life. And I think that it, these are the tools that children need to be successful in, in their careers and their lives. So for me, I'm still very much on the you know pro-technology side, but nothing in life is ever 100% positive. Yeah. And so um, for me now, when I evaluate new technology, when I evaluate investments on the investor side or when I decide projects that I'm going to take on, I always try to look at it from the perspective of, okay, how is this good? What's maybe not going to be so good about this in five or 10 years from now? Like, what do we have to think about? Because I think we all have to be more informed consumers and mm-hmm. look at everything from both sides, not just the side that's being presented to you, whether that's politics or tech or whatever it is. How do you think about technology in your own life and, and what kind of separation, what kind of measures do you take? <laughs> In order to not have it, or maybe you do let it permeate everything. No, I mean, it's it's interesting because I think before you can make rules about tech for your children, you need to do the most painful thing, which is to 
shine that mirror on yourself and look at your own relationship with tech. And uh, often it's very painful. You often see that, you know, oh, wow, we're a little more addicted to these devices uh, than we thought. Um, And so I've really tried to uh, first work on my own relationship and boundaries (laughs) of attack. But also, if you walk into our house, uh, my two sons actually get very little screen time. And whenever I say that to people, they're like, wait, I thought you were really into tech. And I was like, no, 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 that's not the question that you asked. I I said screen time. I didn't say that they don't get tech. My kids get tons of tech. They play with robots. We do all kinds of games and blocks and building and engineering. Um, I think there's a million and one ways to introduce kids to technology that don't involve gluing them to a screen. But I think, unfortunately, in our society, when you think of kids in tech, you conjure up an image of a kid on a screen. And so that's one of the things with a lot of our content that we're creating now that I'm kind of trying to give parents a whole toolbox of ways to get children excited about tech that don't involve that iPad on a sofa. Mm -hmm. Such a good point. So I want to come back to what you're doing with Zuckerberg Media. So you talked about schools, parents, and then young people seeing better representations or more positive representations yes. or even just the opportunity. For example, young women seeing how cool STEM is in pop culture. Totally. So how are you – let's talk specifically about the pop culture thing because I think it's such a good point. We, like it or not, we consume a lot of content and mm-hmm. a lot of that content is pop culture content. That's right. And if there's a way to insert some vegetables <laughs> into it, for lack of a better way of putting it, great. Right. And how do you make the vegetables fun? So when I, I was writing my business book, Dot Complicated, about five years ago, and as I was researching the book, I came across some really just shocking findings that it's really around third grade that girls turn away from technology. Um, and so I actually wound up going back to my publisher and saying, OK, I'm going to finish this business book as we agreed, but you have to let me write a children's book also mm-hmm. because – I can't wait until people are old enough to read my book. Um, I need to reach girls who are four through eight years old. And why do they turn away in third grade? I I mean, I think they turn away because of what they're seeing in pop culture and media, because of maybe teachers who are so overworked uh, and don't understand technology themselves, don't have the bandwidth to introduce technology into the classrooms. Maybe parents feel uncomfortable at home. I think there's a whole slew of reasons, but... Um, so for me, I never set out to be in children's content, but like any entrepreneur, you find a problem and then you, you you double down there. And so that's when I wrote my book, Dot, about a very tech-savvy eight-year-old girl. And now it's a television show. Uh, Congratulations. About tw- Thank it's you. Cute. It's so cute. Thank you. And it's a, just about this awesome girl, Dot, and her group of friends and Everything they do from learning to fly drones to building robots, they always get in trouble. They have to fix it. It's it's cute and fun. And it's now in 20 different countries around the wow. world. Wow. What fun. do you think the thing is that you've done that makes these things successful? Oh, my gosh. Is well, there a thread? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for saying successful. I For me, I'm always you know dreaming 10 years in the future right? of what things will look like. I always see more opportunity. But um, I think for me, it's... Everything's done out of passion. I don't go into these projects thinking, oh, well, there's a, a market opportunity mm-hmm. gap and I'm going to you know, make a million dollars and this and this. I go into things um, with a mixture of passion and data. And that's what I look for in entrepreneurs who come to me for investment, too, because just passion isn't enough. 
You know, you have to identify some numbers in there. But just coming to it from a numbers perspective isn't going to get you through those rocky times in entrepreneurship, the down times and the roller coaster. And so for me, that's how I try to approach everything is a mixture of kind of blind passion, but understanding what the marketplace wants at the same time. And when you hear no, as all entrepreneurs do, how do you how do you think that through? Because I, I the fact that you come with both the passion and the data, obviously, that's so important. And sometimes your data is going to say this makes complete sense, but right. still and the doesn't. Invest, it, it doesn't Correct. make sense. Yep. Or the investor is like, no, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Um, do you, when you hear that, do you think, oh, I need different data or I need a different idea? Or do you think, um, I just need to find a different person to believe in my data? I think it's a, it's a combination of both. Um, sometimes when you hear no, it's just, it's a situation. It's that person. They're not ready in the moment. You know, you keep forging ahead. If you start to hear a pattern of no's though, I think it's very important as an entrepreneur that you not have such blinders on that I think it's very important to try to think, okay, why am I hearing no? Maybe I don't have to change my idea. Maybe it's something about how I walk into the room and present it. Maybe there's a tiny tweak that I can make to my idea that's going to make it more palatable. I mean, there are certain times, though, that you hear no and you don't want to compromise. For example, with Dot, um, there was one country that we pitched our show and uh, they said, sorry, we don't want this show unless you change your black character to not be black. Wow. And I was like, well, then don't take our show. That's not something. Bye. And yeah. and we walked out of the room. And, you know, sometimes you hear no and it's there's nothing that you have to change about your idea. It's, you know, it's the mindset of the other person in the room. Um, but there were a lot of meetings we walked into where they said, no, but if you do this or if you think about something in a different way and that, um, you know, there are a lot of situations where one plus one equals five when you take someone else's viewpoint into consideration. So I think as an entrepreneur, you have to be focused enough that everyone's going to have an idea. Everyone's going to have a suggestion. You need to be able to tune them out and stay focused enough. But don't be too focused that you miss an opportunity to pivot in a direction that's going to be really helpful. One of the things I think a lot about lately is we have so many examples now of entrepreneurs who've made it. You, your brother, Mm -hmm. plenty of other entrepreneurs. And there's like this kind of copycat syndrome. Oh, I'm going to wear a black turtleneck like Steve Jobs <laughs> or drop out of school because that's what a lot of people did. How much do you see that? I can't tell you how many times I meet entrepreneurs who are like, I I now only wear a uniform every day because I saw that that's what it, you know people in Silicon Valley do. And so I did it. So now I'm, you know, now I'm going to create yeah, a great company. I'm going to create a, a great company because it saved me three minutes every day <laughs> that, you know, now I'm going to create a great company. You know, I think there's a lot of little hacks out there that if you're already operating at a high level, like it can take you from 94 percent to 96 percent. Like, sure. that's great. There are a lot of those hacks um, at the end of the day. Entrepreneurship is such a roller coaster ride. There's honestly no good reason why any sane person should be an entrepreneur, like no reason at all. So the only reason you should be in it 
is because you see a problem that you wake up in the morning every day desperately wanting to solve and fix in the way that you've invented. Um, that's really the only way to do it. And so if you think the key to entrepreneurship is wearing black turtlenecks or hoodies <laughs> or doing something like, I think, you know, maybe you're in the wrong line of work. I can imagine you've had to meet with a lot of people in hoodies over the years who didn't necessarily have great ideas. I have. You know, I'm very used to, Rebecca, I'm speaking to crowds of people where I look at them and I'm like, okay, college students or billionaires <laughs> like most of the time it's both um but uh, you know it's it's pretty amazing how you know there's like an inverse proportion between uh, how much money people make and how much they don't look like it <laughs> what are the hacks you do use the things that help save you time mm. for me it's i have a little bit more of a mantra which i know sounds so cheesy like who has a mantra that's you know, Nowadays, dumb. a lot of people okay, are doing well, mantras you. with meditation and so, everything. But I, I've had this mantra for about maybe five years now, and it's called Pick Three. So I wake up in the morning and I say, okay, work, sleep, family, friends, fitness. Pick three. And you get I get to pick three of those that day and just really win at them. And then tomorrow I can pick a different three. And my hope is that instead of being well balanced at all of those five things every day, to be well balanced over the long run. Because let's face it, you cannot do all five of those things well in one 24-hour period. And uh, I think we need to give ourselves permission to maybe be a little more lopsided than, yeah. than balanced. And so that's more of my, I guess, my hack that I do is I say, okay, which of those three are my focus areas for today? And I'm just going to nail them. Given how public Facebook is, the fact that your brother's at the helm, given how public you are with your job, how do you balance standing up for the things that you believe in with the fact that, like it or not, some of the things you say, especially if it's controversial, can have an impact on yeah. what his business is and who he is? It's uh, it's definitely very hard. Um but I think sometimes in life when you do have a last name that people listen to, it gives you even more responsibility to stand up for people who don't have a voice. I mean, that was pretty much everything that we stood for in, in creating Facebook and, and social media was giving a voice to people who didn't have one. And uh, so for me, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that so many women in business around the world are still so invisible. And, you know, if I was feeling invisible, imagine a woman of color trying to start a company and how invisible she feels. And so I thought, okay, you know, maybe it it's not my views aren't always the most popular, but if you have a name and you have influence that people are willing to listen to, I think you have an obligation to stand up for what you feel is right. It's interesting. I remember when my children's book Dot came out, the cover of the book is a little girl holding a tablet. On Amazon, when you looked at the reviews for the book, they were all either like five stars, we love this book, girls in tech, woo, or one star right. of people who hadn't even opened the book. They were just either like, I hate Facebook, or I you know, don't believe that kids should have technology, so I'm going to one star rate this. And um, But I, I mean, I think if you're not taking bold risks in life, if you're not doing things that are getting one star from people, like out of fear... You're you're not pushing yourself hard in life, and so um, I don't know. I think that's that's something in our family we've always uh, been kind of encouraging of, of failure and bold moves and mm -hmm. taking risks. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? I think uh, the toughest lesson I've had to learn is you know I guess you know kind of going back to that getting rejected from the music major. I've had to learn that failure in the moment, even though it feels crushing 
um, is sometimes the biggest gifts that you're given. So another example of that, I after I left Facebook, my first project was I helped produce a docu-series about Silicon Valley. Um, and it got it, so much buzz and so much attention. The first episode was very highly rated. And then the second that was on Bravo. Yes. And then the second was not very highly rated. And then it got moved to a 2 a.m. time slot. And then it was like a marathon up against the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, like <laughs> it, where shows go to die. And um, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is my first project on my own. It's a total bomb. How am I going to scrape myself off the floor? How am I going to be taken seriously in television? Like, I gave up, you know, leading Facebook Live to do this. And um, I I just I felt like such a failure. And it was that same executive that had greenlit that show that when I came out with Dot, my book called me and was like, I love Dot and I believe in you and I'm going to walk you into the head of kids programming. And they bought Dot. So without that experience of doing that show, I never would have had Dot in 20 mm-hmm. countries right now. But, you know, it took me three years to learn that that failure was going to be the key to what was going to happen next. And how did you approach that when you were in meetings in the initial stage? I I always brought it up and I always brought up um, what I learned, what I would have done differently now Mm -hmm. that I learned. But one thing that I realized about all of it, so I guess coming from the Silicon Valley mindset, I felt like it was a huge failure. But when I would walk into meetings, people would say, do you know how hard it is to get a show on TV? And like your first show that you did got picked up for series. And I was always like, wow, you wait, you mean like you don't see me as a huge failure? Um, and so actually, shockingly, doing that show actually gave me more street cred when I went to New York and L.A. because at that time, Facebook Live was still that Internet thing. <laughs> and uh, people now all of a sudden had a real television show unreal, and no one cared that it only lasted one season. They were like, OK, now you're you're an executive producer. Now we can talk to you. That is, I love that story. What a great story. And also just the fact that I think it also says ignorance can be bliss and being an outsider can actually really, really benefit you to not totally. recognize how complicated something is and to not really fully have an awareness of all of the pitfalls in front of you, which I think is the life yes, of an entrepreneur absolutely has its benefits that's as well. why it's like it's great to run your first marathon because you have no idea what you're in for but like don't don't try to run a second one <laughs> have you done a marathon <laughs> i did do one marathon i've done rebecca almost everything in my life and my career uh, is just like me trying things that i was vastly unqualified for but <laughs> managed to do it because like you said i just didn't know better i was enough of an outsider that like had i known what i was in for i never would have done it um but yes i, I ran a marathon Right after I graduated school, I sang on Broadway. Like I, that know, was great. That was a performance. I was in a show in on Broadway. I so this is what finally got me back to New York because my whole life I had thought you know I'll I'll only be in Silicon Valley for a minute and then. 10 years later, I was still two kids. I was still there. I was like, okay, I think I have to give up my New York dream of moving back. And then um, one thing uh, about me is even though, you know, we, we talked a lot about how I love to sing, that was a, a dream of mine. And so um, I had to really table that when I went to Silicon Valley because I had a lot of mentors who said, you know, it's hard enough to be a woman out in Silicon Valley don't do anything that's distracting to your job because already they're just going to want to talk about what you look like and who your brother is. They're not going to want to talk about any of your own accomplishments. So don't do anything that's even further distracting. And um, 
So I really had to to table a lot of my dreams about singing and my love of music. The one thing that I did do, though, is I created a band inside of Facebook. We were like an 80s rock cover band. And um, it was so fun. We played at like all the par- parties. And then there was a show on Broadway, Rock of Ages, an 80s rock musical, right? that I guess they were looking for a new kind of star to come into their show, like a tech personality. <laughs> and they're like, we, you know, does anyone know a tech personality who loves to sing? And that was, you know, a Venn diagram of one person. And uh, <laughs> so I went to star on Broadway Um about three years ago, I finally got to realize my life dream. What was after that like all. the first time you walked out on stage? It was incredible. I mean, it was the most incredible experience of my life. My parents were in the front row. It is a very funny, raunchy show. They cried the entire show. The <laughs> were cast- you worried about that at all, by the way? Like, oh, God, if I get a glimpse of my dad when I'm saying something. Totally. Yeah, totally. Because I was like, there, I mean, there are like strippers in the show. I mean, it is, it's wild. But um, it was... You know, it was so cool because it also reinforced to me that there's a lot of ways of coming back to a dream. I think society tries to tell all of us there's only one way to get mm-hmm. to a dream. There's only one route. And what I realized, you know, I thought my whole life if I wanted to sing in opera and sing in Broadway, I had to, you know, train in music and get an agent and go to auditions and do all of these things when really the the secret was just – um being myself mm-hmm. and building my own brand on social yeah. media and and doing that and um there's so many paths for all of us to accomplish our dreams so and now here I am in New York and I'm incredibly involved in both the tech world and the theater world and so I feel like I have the the best of both worlds now I always say find a side door when yep. everybody else is going through the front entrance it's so much harder if you can find totally. that side thing that you do differently than anyone else Yes. You have an opportunity. I feel like everyone is – that makes people really uncomfortable and so whatever, screw them because people, <laughs> they they want to go up to you and say, what do you do for a living? And w- they want you to have a very quick, easy response to that and to be able to put you in a little box. And I've spent a lot of years of my life making people uncomfortable because they say, what do you do? And I don't have a ready answer. What like, do you well, say? You know, I'm, it, depend, it depends on the situation. You know, sometimes I'm an entrepreneur. Sometimes I'm an actress. Sometimes I'm a radio host. Sometimes I'm a children's book author. And uh, that makes people very uncomfortable when you have oh. a lot of things that you do. But um, I think it's, like you said, it's what makes you unique. That is a competitive advantage in business. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what if it makes people a little uncomfortable? Totally agree with that. (laughs) Worst advice you've received over the years? I think on that same front, uh, I had a mentor who I really respected um, who told me to be less interesting. And What did that mean? It meant uh, kind of what we were saying before. It meant that... I shouldn't do anything that would distract people from what I was accomplishing in my career. Um, Be more narrowly focused. That's right. Be narrowly focused. You know, if you're a career businesswoman, you shouldn't also have, you know, a love of Broadway or, you know, things that you're doing on the side because um, that's too distracting. So be less interesting. Just like prove to everyone that you're a really hard worker and you're focused only on that thing. Like keep your head down. Just be like a business badass 24 hours a day and do that. And Maybe that works for some people. Like, that's probably really good advice if you want to be, you know, a CEO of a huge company. And, um, but Which you are. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but that it wasn't good advice for me because when you, um, 
ignore giant parts of your life and your soul that make you happy, that's that's it's just terrible advice to tell someone to do that. And um, I remember when I was finally when I got the opportunity to star in Rock of Ages, I had a lot of people who told me not to do it. They were like, no one will ever take you seriously in business again if you just, you know, kind of jump ship from Silicon Valley and go sing on Broadway. Like, that's such a frivolous, silly thing to do. And I think especially for women, you know, it's acceptable to have your career and your family. But anything that you do that's for you is considered, you know, indulgent Mm -hmm. and, and frivolous and distracting. And I finally just said, you know what, like when I'm on my deathbed, I don't think I'm going to sit there and say, I wish I didn't sing on Broadway so more people would like me. And uh, it, to this day, I mean, it's it it's up there and just like the coolest things I've ever done in my life. And um, my husband actually commented that I seemed lighter in my soul. And that was when he was like, OK, I we have to move back to New York, obviously. You know, I can't bring you back to Silicon Valley after seeing how happy this is making you. So I don't know. I I would encourage women to be more interesting, not be less interesting, because there's plenty of uninteresting, boring people out there. It is what makes you interesting and what, what you're you passionate tick. about. Yes, that is honestly going to be your superhero ingredient to success in business. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is the thing that Every person sitting across from me in your seat talks about this idea that when you were playing the game, trying to play it by whatever else you thought everybody wanted from you, didn't work out. Nope. But the moment that you had the underlying foundation of things, but then there's the magic that starts to happen when you just go out and do it the way you really want to do it. Absolutely. And now... I've um, taken a lot of what I learned from performance and I bring it into into the business world. So now I give business lectures all over the world. I sing when I'm on stage. Like it's it's. Will a, you yeah. sing for us? Oh my gosh! What do you sing to if them? You want? Yes, you please. Twist my arm. Yes, please. Um, I have a little. You know, I have different songs depending on where I go in the world and what's appropriate. But I find that. Um, you know, content sticks when you entertain people a little more. And so tech and business can be a little dull and dry. And so, you know, how how do you get it to really stick? So um, my favorite one I've been doing recently is a, a parody of The Little Mermaid that's all about <laughs> unplugging and technology. So, oh, my gosh, are we really going to do this? Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm let's go for it. Let's say, <laughs> look at this phone loaded with apps, Siri and Facebook and... Uh, Apple Maps, looking around here, you think, wow, she's got everything. I've got iPads and Androids for poking. I've got a Fitbit that's truly divine. I've got a Blackberry. No, I'm joking. But I long to live life more offline. I want to go where the people go. Bookstores. Or somewhere that's still existent. There I would meet them and then we would, what's the word? Talk out where they date, date as they should. Somewhere where Tinder means only would. Out there and free. Wish I could be part of that world. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you did that. That was fantastic. That's so cool. You're oh so cool, gosh. Randy. No, it's, I don't know about cool. No, it's but, cool. But, it is uh, cool. No, but I mean, 
I feel like there's there's a ton of speakers out there on the business circuit. There's a ton of people you can go listen to who are inspiring. There's a million TED Talks. But I've always thought, you know, like, what do, what do I have that no one else has? And there are not that many people out there who are both, you know, can give a, a business story about entrepreneurship and then also include kind of performance and fun into it. And so that's why I was saying, like, what makes you unique is what's going to be your competitive advantage. As soon as I started singing in my keynotes, my business tripled uh, getting booked. And now people, if I don't sing, like, right, like, they they feel like they got dipped. <laughs> They're like, why didn't Randy sing for us? <laughs> like, I'm like, because you're like a, you know, a, like a business conference of older men in suits in Germany. Like, I didn't think it was appropriate. And they're like, why didn't you sing? <laughs> well, I love I love this conversation. I love the singing portion of it as well. Randy, you are an incredible human being. And I mean that so sincerely. You figured it out. You figured it out. And the only thing I'm curious about is, why you think so early on in your career all this stuff clicked for you because most people take a much longer time if they even get to that point oh my gosh I don't know I don't know if it clicked uh I feel like I'm still figuring things out you know I call myself you know at a a tech expert and an amateur mom like I feel (laughs) like I'm just you know (laughs) trying to survive one day at a time but um you know I just I I think that there's a big disconnect when you ask people, what do you do for a living? And like, what do you love? Or what's the most interesting thing about you? You seem really genuinely happy with um, all of it. I am. And I think that's because I've been able to create a life for myself where the answer to those two questions is the same. I think for most people, it's not the same. And, uh, you know, this is life short. This isn't a dress rehearsal. So um, I hope that for everyone out there, the answer to the question, what do you do for a living? And what's the most interesting thing about you um, that you can get to a point in your life where they're the same answer. Randy Zuckerberg, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.